Have you come to read to me, says Vera. If you like, if you have a book, you say. The heavy door closes in behind you. The lights were off in the smoking room, and Vera was an L-shaped silhouette in a green chair, catching none of the creeping streetlight from the large window. You had walked first past her empty house, too frightened to go inside, then continuing along the street until you reached the hospital. You'd waited outside, watching through the plate glass for the matron to move away from her post. Then you'd gone along the dim corridor and up the stairs, passing occasional late-night visitors coming to and from the intensive care unit. Murmurs of difficult conversations echoing off sterile walls and floors. From the doorway of her ward, you'd seen that Vera's unmade bed was empty, the sheets and pink blanket in a great mound at its base. I couldn't sleep, you say, and walked over and sat down next to her. Are you here to see me, or is there someone else you're visiting? You. I'm here to see you. What would you have done if I was asleep? Don't know. Waited. Woke you. She smiled and passed you the cigarettes. Do you know what I'd love, she says. Toast. With butter and marmalade. Decent fucking coffee. She had not put her slippers on, her big toe closest to you at a scrape of nail varnish. There's a farter in my ward. I've not located her, but she's there, farting. You laughed, and she seemed to like that. There's a woman about my age. She has these awful little snot-nosed children to pile around her every day. I don't think she's sick. She's on sabbatical. When they leave, she takes out a magazine and visibly relaxes. Have you children, you say? But she didn't like that. A long ash tipped from the end of her cigarette and fell unnoticed. Are your feet cold, you say? No. What's your story, Sonny? Don't know. You a crush on me or something? You looked away and felt your face flush. There's no need to be croquettish about it. I don't know what that means. It means you need to read more. Not too old for you, no? She looked at you down and you were brave and held her stare. Now you say. I suppose if that's what works for you. What's with the wine, the red wine? Who's that for? Me. Just you. Yeah. But flowery for your neck of the woods, no? My neck of the woods? Look, if you're going to pretend to be stupid, I'm going to find another friend. Yes, your neck of the woods. The end where teenage lads don't drink red wine. As she lit another cigarette, the small flame illuminated her face. You watched her hands fold around the flame and her mouth press forward. Why did you move to Ireland? I like the rain. You must fucking love it. Who cares, Sonny? I mean, really, it's a story. I do, you say. Well, good, you make one up and we'll both believe it. You were lost then. You really had no idea how to speak with her. If it were Sharon, you'd have just pushed her. She'd have pushed you back and that would have been that. But you sat in the dark room in the silence and smoked. You were glad to know that you had the duration of time a fresh cigarette gave you, each puff falling like pink sand from an hourglass. The silence between you was enough. You watched her, secretly at first, then allowed your stare to openly settle, here and there as you pleased, and she showed no signs of discomfort. She was beautiful, your Vera, and perhaps was used to being watched. She turned down and caught your eye on purpose, held it like a vice, like an inspection. Your eyes and nose and mouth and chin. You're too young to be lonely. Where are your friends, she says. Where are yours? She continued to watch you. I might have said something, but her attention was turned to the sound of quick footsteps from the corridor. They stopped, and at once the door was pushed open. Oh, it's you in here, Vera, says the nurse, scarcely filling the doorframe. 
You could see that the dark crucifix strapped to the wall behind her. It frightened you. The crucifix had always frightened you. Yes, says Vera, my nephew has paid a visit from Wexford. Oh, well, says the nurse, we're not disturbing you. Well, certainly bending the rules, as you know. I mean, really, he should not be let up at this late hour. It makes the other women uncomfortable. Of course, says Vera. Righto. The nurse nodded sharply once, and the door closed behind her. That's your marching orders, I think, she says. What has she got against people from Wexford, you say, standing? She smiled a bit, and you wondered if you were making it up because you wanted it to be true, or did she seem disappointed you were leaving? Thanks for the visit, she says. Yeah, you say, standing over her. She looked up with a slight smile. You better go before you make the women uncomfortable. Carl, thank you so much for reading from uh, Montpellier Parade, your debut novel. Um, we heard there about Sonny and Vera, your your two main characters. But before we get to them, I want to talk to you about the the sort of the the way that you've written this book. It's written in the second person, which we heard there. So yeah. the the reader is constantly addressed as you, and we see the story through Sonny. That's quite an unusual perspective to write a book from, and I just wondered what made you choose it. Um, it was actually it was a very reluctant decision i didn't i didn't intend to have the story come out a second person um I, i've seen it work very well in short story form it's very hard to sustain over a long form um but it the story really showed up in second person and i think there's a couple of things that that added to it working first off there's a certain uh accusation in you it's a finger pointed it's a you and and the second thing, and it kind of works against that, is that there's an intimacy in it. It's as if the protagonist can't quite come to terms with his own story and needs to push it once from himself, almost remove himself to it to get mm. to the truth of his own story. Um, and then I suppose the third thing was that within the Irish vernacular, there is this practice, this kind of oral tradition where people do tell a story as a you, your man's coming down the road. Mm. Wouldn't believe what your man said in the pub last night. Your man said, and it's it's this kind of language that you have. And so, actually, when when it did come in a second person, there was always a moment going, oh my! I, I felt like I'd kind of hit upon something. And also, because Sonny is such a remote individual, he's remote to himself. He's remote to the world, and that separateness that he has suddenly within the second person it, it worked very well it, it was a way for me as an author to get closer to him mm. so it was nice um, you sort of touched a bit there on, on Sonny's character Sonny and Vera are separated by many things there's the there's an age gap there's a there's a class difference correct yeah they have quite an unconventional relationship <laughs> and I just wondered what it was that attracted you to sort of writing about two people like that well it's it's interesting because I've been writing, even though it's a debut novel, I've been writing for years and you realise that there's only a certain amount of themes that keep kind of, you've only got one or two and they kind of keep coming up. But there certainly seems to be something for me in, in this idea of of separateness and together. Mm. Um, and and both of these characters, um, they have that. They, they are entirely encased in their own minds and worlds. Um, and what I like about the two of them is that when when Vera thinks about the world, she looks over her shoulder, she looks backwards, it's in memory. And when Sonny thinks it's forward, it's 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 he thinks in terms of dreams and their bookends. 
And the idea of putting these two bookends together and almost to see what they would do mm. um, was really nice. And also, you know, the book is so much about longing and isolation and desire, love. But you have two people who don't have a language to express any of these things. And so it's a great challenge as a writer um, to try and use language to express people who do not have a language, mm. you know, to kind of work around that. Um, and it's it's a funny it's a funny love story because it's 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 almost only a love story at the end. It, it, before that, it's a, a story about longing, it's about desire, but then ultimately about letting go. And there's this transa- uh, transcendence that happens within that letting go. And then you have, I think, at the end, you have love. Um, but they have to learn, and also, you know, they're unusual people how there's this at one point Sonny turns around and he, he tells Vera that he loves her and she says you know this isn't love you, you need to know that this, that's not what this is but he knows what he feels mm. and so it's as authentic and real to him as, as any any experience you know so in his mind it's 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 quite true and I think actually there's this kind of quiet trust that builds up between them and there is a love between them mm. you know um in spite of the circumstances um which which really pull against what should be a tra- you know a relationship mm. um but they're both very limited people they're both wanting different things <laughs> <laughs> you see now, i'm really interested to hear you say about them not having a language to communicate how they feel with each other because I actually thought one of the amazing strengths of this book amongst many is is the dialogue between them and I wondered with your previous work as an actor did that help in any way in creating dialogue did it sort of feel natural to do that or is it to do with as you said the Irish vernacular tradition which is very oral used to hearing you know yeah. you hear those Irish voices or did you have to work really hard to, to create the right well dialogue it's I actually started, when I was quite young, I wrote prose badly, very earnest prose. Um, and I'd written a novel in my very early 20s, um, which was an absolutely dreadful, dreadful piece of work. Um, but the one thing in it that was sort of successful, and so I had a filmmaker friend say to me that, you know, you, you may not have a novel here, but you may have a screenplay. Okay. And I turned it into a screenplay, and so we went from being sort of a, a earnest, badly written piece of prose to a an okay script to a kind of a mediocre film, do mm-hmm. you know? But there was dialogue. The dialogue worked, and there was a there was dialogue. And actually, I think I, I, I just happened to have a good ear for that stuff, and I think being an actor certainly sharpens that. You know it's what's honest and what's truthful. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of dialogue is... It can be very um, false, hmm. um, because it, to have this something truthful, and you work from that place. So once you have something truthful on a page, if there's something there that's not, it stands out. Mm-hmm. And so as a way of working, sort of from the outside in, in terms of building these characters. So yeah, certainly the, as a screenwriter, it would have helped a great deal, and then probably as an actor too, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have done wouldn't have done any harm. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, like uh, somebody who obviously understands how drama works and like a lot of dramatists um, you're very good at holding back crucial information about 
the characters and sort of releasing it as the reader goes through the book. Is it quite hard to be that controlled? I mean, because the novel does feel very controlled in terms of... It is controlled. Um, and I did. it was important to me that the language was pulled very tight, yeah. that, that there was nothing sparse in the work at all. And as a result of that, the, the novel that's there is several hundred pages less than the original novel. Mm. And it was important for me to gather up all that information to know everything about these people just so I could start disposing of what wasn't relevant. Um, and it's difficult, too, because I, 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 I think of it a lot as... I suppose maybe the way painters think that you can overwork a canvas mm. um, and and if you pull back too much I, I, I think you're starting to steal things from the, from the reader um, and so it's just a balancing act but I think it's instinct because I, I, you know, I don't have a, an extraordinary academic background mm. so I, I think it just must be an instinct thing to know where to allow information and where not to, but it's, it, it doesn't come from technique. It, it comes from emotion. Um, that at certain pitches within the different journeys that each character makes, that there are times where they're either free or frightened enough to release the stuff. Um, and I think I think that's that's kind of what where that comes from. Yeah. I'm going to ask now a bit about actually the, going to the title really, Montpellier Palais mm. Parade, because that is a real street in Dublin. Yeah, yeah, um, it is. You grew up in Dublin, but you left at the age of 16, is that That's right? That's correct, yeah. And you haven't lived there since. No, so I haven't. I know that a lot of people reading this book will, will see how well observed the sort of uh, the location is. And I wondered whether it helped that sort of both literal distance and the, the chronological distance that you have from, from where you grew up to, to be able to see it more clearly and, and represent it on the page? Yeah, it's a terrific question, actually, because I think... Uh, I remember um, Patrick Havner talked about this, an Irish poet from Monaghan. He's a rural poet, and he, he talked about this idea of there's two ways to know the world. You can, you can know these little laneways with this huge intimacy where mm. you can know a little bit about the world, but you can't know both. Okay. And childhood happens, at least in my recollection of it, at a, at a pace that is slower than the rest of your life. And so my childhood memories of Dublin are very, very detailed and... Exact, and uh, there's an intimacy I have with those recollections that I don't have in later parts of my life. And so I know Dublin in that way. I, I, I did leave at 16. Actually, I left sooner and came back and left again. But um, yeah, Montpellier Parade is a beautiful terraced um, kind of Georgian style buildings that look down onto Sea Point and across the Irish Sea. Very pretty. Um, and as a kid, I'd, I'd walked by it. But the, the house is a vital part of telling us something about Vera because she tells us so little about herself mm. that we learn about her through the house. You know, parts of the moulding have started to decay, this chipped paint, but it's been covered over a little bit. And, and really, um, it, was, it was a vital... It, the house becomes a character mm. in, the, in the story. Um, yeah, and it was a, it was a it was a it was a fun way to to talk about Vera. 
through the house. And Sonny notes it a few times. And it's, it's interesting thing with Sonny. He's a, really a hypervigilant kid in some ways or adolescent. Um, but he, he has an awareness and, and that he's not even aware of himself, if that makes sense. Yeah. That he, he, there's a hypervigilance there that he, an acuteness that has helped him survive his life. But it's also very useful in, in, in bringing us into Vera's world in a way. But he does know that, that you know, particularly in the evening and you can feel the, the darkness come into the house and Vera's there in the house, her own large house and how, how she must see that evening come on and feel dread. Mm. Um, and so that's what the house is. That's what Montpellier Parade is. It was very important. But it's funny, actually, because I have I've been back there since. <laughs> and I kind of think, oh, God, I, I picked a specific house. And I have no idea who lives in it. The birth people. <laughs> um, you know, but the, the good news is it, it, a, a number is never given. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's, it's a street I, I, I feel a connection to. I don't know why I didn't grow up there, like nearby, but, you know. Yeah. No. Well, perhaps it's because you, you didn't grow up there. It's, it's more like suddenly you're the, you know, the person. The outsider, correct. It, yeah, yeah. And sort of yeah. see into it. Yeah, and it's, it does have a, a this kind of grand position as you go by. It is quite pronounced, um, you, you know. So, it, yeah, no, it's a... <laughs> and yeah. with, with Sunny and Vera, I just think that Again, one of the strengths of this book is that readers will become very close to them uh, through reading the book. And I certainly felt when I finished the book that I sort of almost immediately missed them slightly mm. as characters because I, that was the end of the story. Mm. And I just wondered whether for you as the writer, the creator of them, did mm. you have a similar feeling when you finished writing the book or were you, were you happy that you had... It's, sort of it's difficult to answer without feeling horribly pretentious to say, <laughs> but I was got it. Really? Yeah, because I lived with them for four and a half years um, every day and I really missed them. I'm actually slightly bereft <laughs> <laughs> um, because because it, it was it's quite an it was quite an emotional book to yeah, write um, because I just felt for both of them so much um, and I hope that comes across as as in the writing in it that you know it was from a an observer's point of view that felt compassion because mm. um, I think the book is it's a very compassionate book it's very dark it's it's um and I think it's funny at times but it, it certainly is i hopefully full of compassion but I did I missed them and i i I'm slightly lost without them I'm <laughs> going around looking for these other stories and I've been taking notes and doing that thing you do as a writer yeah but I do find yeah, there's a there's an emptiness somewhere without them that I assume will be. it's 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 kind of like the end of a relationship. Yeah, you know it's. Uh, well, I guess that's <laughs> a testament to, as I say, the, the the strength of the writing within the book. Because if if it wasn't that well done, then you wouldn't miss it so much. So. Well, there's that, and also I feel like if you're not that invested, why bother? Yeah, you know, life's too. There's easier things to do with your time. <laughs> do you know? And this wasn't an easy uh, endeavor. So yeah, yeah, no, it was. It was. Uh, it was quite intense. I think uh, I think my family will be delighted <laughs> for a while to not, <laughs> not to have me dragging these guys around, <laughs> you know. Well, we're very glad that uh, you've given them to us as Thank readers. You. Carl, it's fascinating to speak to you uh, about this book. Thank you for, for giving us the time. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Will.